You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Good morning. You thought you were rid of me, didn't you? Well, this morning we're going to start a chapter in 1 Corinthians that will explain to you why you can't sue the church for me being back. And it's very instructive, very interesting, and uh, we should have some interesting times discussing it. So let's open in prayer. Father, we thank you that you sent your son to pay the the incredible and permanent price for our salvation. And that uh, with that salvation, you have given us the mind of Christ. Neither did we deserve. Both we are so grateful for. And so this morning, as we walk through more of your, your teaching in 1 Corinthians, we pray for your discernment, your wisdom, and that your Holy Spirit would guide us and that we would come away from this with an even more profound delight and love and awe for the Word of God. And we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to read chapter 6. Am I loud? Well, <laughs> don't answer that. It was a technical question, not a personal one. Okay. All right. Yeah, you're loud, you twerk. We're going to walk through um, more of what was going on in the church at Corinth and and see how Paul under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, writes to them, treats the situation, does not attempt to shame them, but gives warning and correction. Remember, all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction that we may live lives that will be characterized by a devotion and love for the Savior. And, and that's what Paul wanted for the Corinthians. And in many cases, it seems, now we're, we, we aren't there, it will be a delight in the eternities to come to find out just what all really was going on in Corinth day by day. Um, but we aren't there, but we can see that that they struggle with numerous things in that they will not allow, they are in many ways they are not allowing God's Word to inform their daily living. Wrong theology results in bad behavior. Good theology, accompanied by the inspired by the Holy Spirit, will result, can result in good behavior. And so that's what Paul is seeking for these. We finished up in chapter 5 with the four, with, when he talked about um, removing the wicked man from among themselves really quickly, verses 12 and 13. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? And that's significant for what we're going to be talking about in 1 Corinthians 6. Judging those who are in the church. By the way, we're not supposed to be judgmental, are we? Oh, this is going to be a terrible section. The safe space is up behind the piano. But if anybody goes there, <laughs> look out. What do I have to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So it was an exercise in church discipline. And we saw that there were four purposes. And, and you can limit things to three or four or six or nine. And, and there are maybe more. But this kind of catches the, the gist of it. It 
publicly vindicates God in His holiness and His honor. It restores the purity of a local body and deters others from sinning. It displays God's standards of holiness to the world and draws a line between the church and the world. And it should be a bright line. And effective church discipline always, always, if properly done, conveys biblical love and seeks to restore the sinner. And so that's what Paul is called, was calling them to do with this man who was living with his, his, his stepmother at the time. Which, as he said, was a sin that even the pagans are not known for. So this is what, this is what will, this, this chapter five kind of sets the, the tone for the, the legal aspect of chapter six. If people are doing horrible things, silly things, rotten things, there's going to be other people in the same group who might object to it. Wouldn't you think? And if they don't have, if they aren't following proper biblical doctrine, they may treat those things in an unbiblical way. And so what the Corinthians would do in the case, especially of property crime, is they would sue each other. So let's read about this. Chapter 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more matters of this life? If then you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother. And that before unbelievers. Actually, then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud, and that your brethren. Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Let's stop there. So he starts this chapter out with yet another of the Corinthian excesses where the pendulum had swung clear over to wrong behavior, past the balance that God's Word will give. And I might I might also in, in, insert here, past the balance that comes when you can seek counsel of godly help. Um, people who can help you understand, help us understand. So in this chapter, we will be introduced to two more Corinthian errors. First, they were suing each other over, it seems, everything. They couldn't solve their own difficulties in the church even when they had all the teaching that they had had and the wealth of the Old Testament to give them the principles to solve the issues for which they were taking to the worldly courts. Again, Paul does not shame them, although in one section he does says he says, I, I say this to your shame, but he doesn't attempt to shame them. But he warns that these things ought not to be so. Brothers, these things ought not to be so. He even goes to the extent of encouraging someone who has been defrauded by a so-called brother, actually a brother, he said brother against brother, to bear that fraud and love the brother. Oh, that's easy, isn't it? They just stole $300 from you or $3,000 or $30,000 or or something. And uh, 
we're to bear that fraud and love them anyway. That's what Paul's calling the Corinthian believers to. And by, ish, and by extension, the Holy Spirit is calling all of His church. I'm not talking about ignoring sin, but I'm talking about the relationship between brothers and, and sisters in Christ. The second issue Paul deals with in this chapter is actually a continuation of the first of the basic issue of chapter 5, which is sexual immorality. This was a plague in ancient Greece. And the fact that Paul has to deal with it from several fronts should not be surprising. This chapter kind of covers the gamut of sexual immorality, including sex, uh, homosexuality and prostitution. How many of you are here for the same-sex seminar? Okay, so I won't thoroughly rehash that, but we will be going through some of that again. This chapter covers that gamut. Paul will pull no punches in dealing with these Aaron Corinthians. Proper theology, properly applied under the power of the Holy Spirit, will respond, will result in proper behavior. So the first verse, he and, and you have to, I try to, when I'm reading this, I read it over and over, and I try to picture Paul marching back and forth in front of, I've talked to you about this before, in front of his secretary. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his brother, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? I don't think he just said it dispassionately like, well, does any one of you, when he has a case against him, I don't think he did that. I think he, he's dealing with real people, people whom he loves, people who he cares about, people who he sees continually marching in the wrong direction and causing havoc in their lives and in the lives of those around them. Not following biblical theology doesn't just result in problems. It results in the ripple effect that comes by hurting those around us. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? In New Testament Greece, litigation was common. It was very common. Lawsuits were brought for nearly any reason. And lest we laugh at that, I'm going to show some of the things that people have sued in the United States of America. Just a few cases when we get to it. And, and we laugh, but it's really, it's really, it's a harming thing. Um, they would sue each other. Lawsuits were brought for nearly any reason and they were heard before juries, which could be comprised of 201, 1,001, or even 6,001 jurors. Do you know what the one was for? So that we would get a decision, even if it was by one vote. <laughs> 3,001 to 3,000. Yeah. Litigation was rampant. There were no magistrates per se. The juries made the decisions. Uh, if a litigant was unhappy with the decision of the jury, he could bring a tort and he could pursue that. Litigation was rampant and consumed a lot of time. There would be no formal arrest or application of laws in today's legal procedure. If someone felt they had been wronged by another, they would simply deliver a formal summons to that person in the presence of witnesses. They would come into the church while, with all these witnesses, point to the bad guy, and deliver a formal summons in front of all us as witnesses. <coughs> the, the summons would require the defendant to appear on a specified date before the legal magistrate or King Archon. The defendant would have to answer to the charges before the Archon. Once the Archon had determined the validity of the summons, a date would be set for a preliminary hearing. The terms of that hearing would be formally posted in a public place. Following the arguments, the herald of the court called on the jurors to consider their decision. This is talking about the jury. And in Athens, jurors did not retire to a jury room to deliberate. They made their decisions without discussion among themselves, based in large part on their own interpretations of the law. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, 
The 500 jurors voted on his guilt. We're talking about, this is actually talking about um, Socrates, the trial of Socrates. And so, interestingly enough, the, he, he, he lost his life on a relatively close vote of 280 to 220. Interestingly, if less than 100 jurors had voted for guilt, the accusers had to pay the fine to cover the cost of the trial. That would be nice today, wouldn't it? If, if accusers, if litigants, if especially in the cases of all these government things, if the losers had to pay the cost of the court case, maybe they'd quit suing for superfluous and silly things. At the preliminary hearing, the public, the accuser, would publicly read the written charge he had against the person he was suing. The defendant would then answer the charge. Both the written charge and the denial would be attested by each of the petitioners under oath as being true. Next would be interrogation with the magistrate who would question both the accusers and the accused. This kind of gives some flesh to what was going on in Athens. We will hear more of this tomorrow, the Athenians said to Paul. This, these were people who enjoyed lawsuits. This was their, this was their, what would you, it was their entertainment. It was their Netflix. This is what they did for fun. Um, the accuser and the accused were also allowed to question each other. Once the magistrate found a basis for the accusations, formal charges would be drawn up with a date set for a public trial. Trials would take place generally in the people's court somewhere in the center of the city. The jurors would consist of the jury would consist of 201 juries for civil cases, jurors for civil cases, but up to 1,501 people for criminal trials. These were drawn from a predetermined set of 6,000 jurors who had to apply to be a juror. I wonder where the one came from. Anyway, the large juries were primarily used as a protection from against bribes because they thought it was thought that no one could afford to bribe 500 people. Um, jurors were probably farmers, and their payment was three obols, or about $4.17 in today's wages. Not very much. Jurors had to swear an oath, and the oath was... This is, this is what they were paid. But the oath was, I will cast my vote in consonance with the laws and decrees passed by the assembly and by the council. But if there is no law in consonance with my sense of what is most just without favor or enmity, I will vote only on the matters raised in the charge and I will listen impartially to the accusers and the defenders alike. Not so much like the American system of jurisprudence where according to the originers, originators of it, especially the Supreme Court at the time, John Jay, who was a who was the uh, uh, chief justice, that juries actually sat in in uh, judgment of the law itself, the law and the, con and the question. So the name drachma, by the way, I thought this was interesting. You see that all the time, a day's pay, was drawn from what could be grasped in the hand uh, of, of um, bullion. In 500 B.C., a drachma had a value of about $25, so an obol was worth about $4.17. That's where I got the $4.17 that got paid. Jurors got paid. What do jurors get paid today? Is it 10 bucks a day? Who's been on a jury? Wow. Was it? You don't remember. I think it's 25 $25. So you're doing it out of a sense of civic duty, unless you're eight and... $25 seems like a lot of money. <laughs> Juries would have to inform themselves to a great degree of the crime and the laws against the crime. Once the trial phase was over the, and the jury had decided the guilt or innocence of the defendant, if guilty, the trial would enter a second phase where punishment was assessed. In the famous trial of Socrates, which resulted in a very close vote of 280 to 220, 280 guilty, 
220 innocent, the principal accusers proposed the punishment of death. Socrates, if Plato's account is to be believed, proposed first the punishment, or rather the non-punishment of free meals at the center of the city. Then later, the extremely modest fine of one mina of silver, a very small amount. Apparently finding Socrates' proposed punishment insultingly light, the jury voted for the prosecution's proposal of death by a larger margin than for conviction, 340 to 360 to 140. So in New Testament Greece, it was actually fun to participate in the legal system. Presenting a case pro se was not as daunting in classical Athens as it may first appear. Most Athenians probably acquired some familiarity with the workings of the law courts, both from serving as jurors and by attending trials, which took place in or near the shopping district and served as a form of popular entertainment. So in your mall, you had Cabela's and the law courts. <laughs> Would make it very convenient. After, after the, the, uh, Conviction phase of the trial, you could go shop for shoes. And so in the Corinthian church, there would be members suing because they had been, in their minds, defrauded. But also, in many cases, as it was possible, they would have been participating in the legal circus because it was enjoyable. Especially for malcontents and near-do-wells and the, the indolent and lazy who had nothing else but time on their hands. Uh, they would sue each other for just silly things. For centuries, the Jews had taken their disputes private or to synagogue court. They would not adjudicate their own problems before a pagan court. They believed, rightly, that God had provided everything they needed within his word to solve their disputes with one another. It was even considered blasphemy to go to court before the, the Gentiles. Apparently, this did not work its way into the New Testament church at, at uh, Corinth. The Romans actually gave the Jews the ability to... Um, the Jewish leadership, the ability to do this and did not interfere in their courts. Only in the matter of a capital case would the Jewish leadership have to go to Rome to get permission to send someone to death. And so, the story about the crucifixion of Christ, they actually had to get Roman permission to do that. Anything else, less than death, um, punishments, beatings, stripes, they could do on their own. Because Christians were considered by the Romans to be Jewish, a Jewish sect, the believers in Corinth could have settled their own cases, but many of them chose to sue one another in synagogues before Jewish judges or in the courts of the Roman pagan public courts. Roman pagan, pagan, the Roman pagan public courts. Say that three times fast. With this background, Paul berates the Corinthians for taking one another to court. So it, it not we, we read that verse and we just think about people going to court, but this was time-consuming, money-consuming, family-destroying, events that occurred in the, in the Corinthian church. <laughs> this is not a case for creating Christian courts, but rather an instruction to deal with their, deal with their problems within the body. As Barclay noted in his commentary, he said this, in this section, Paul is dealing with a problem which is, which, which specially affected the Greeks. The Jews did not ordinarily go to law in the public law courts at all. They settled things before the elders of the village or the elders of the synagogue. To them, Justice was far more of a thing to be settled in family spirit than in legal spirit. In family spirit than in legal spirit. The Greeks were in fact famous or notorious for their love of going to law. And I was supposed to have that up there for you to read as I was saying it. There's the Bema seat, the Greek Bema seat in the center of one of the cities. 
for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And so that was what the that was what was in mind when they when that scripture was was written. The word case is a a word that comes from an interesting translation of the Greek, and it it's uh, it's actually a translation of three words: a noun, a verb, and a preposition, which together denote a lawsuit. The word, by the way, unrighteous, does not refer to the moral nature of the judges, but rather to the simple fact that they were unjustified. They were not saved. They were not Christians. They were unrighteous judges, as opposed to the righteous who should be able to be judging these things. Disputes between Christians should be settled by Christians among Christians with biblical principles. If we have the mind of Christ, the word of God, and the indwelling Holy Spirit, can we not settle our own issues, Paul is saying? This is what he's asking in this simple statement. The Corinthian condition also led to this misapplication of biblical truth. When Christ returns to set up his millennial kingdom, Christians will sit in judgment with him. Paul utters statements in amazement throughout this entire epistle, but especially in this, in, 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 starting in this chapter. The pendulum swings of the Corinthians were very unsettling. So the word case is, is pragma. What, what English word do we get from that? Pragmatic. So this was a, an interesting thing. It was a matter, a fair, a thing done, something to be disputed, something to be settled. Any comments or questions about verse 1? 1 Corinthians 6, 2. Or do you not know? So I want to read one again. Does any of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world and if the, if the world is to be ju- is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Paul uses the phrase, do you not know, six times in this chapter. In verses 2, 3, 9, 15, 16, and 19. Every time it introduces a concept that the, Christ- the Christians in Corinth should have known. Don't you know better? Do you not know? Don't you know this? I've taught this. Apollos taught this. Timothy taught this. Paul uses the phrase six times. Every time it introduces a concept they should have known. Had They had the Old Testament, and from Paul's own statements, they had the teachings of himself, Apollos, and others for years. It's very easy to ignore the right thing to do when money and valued possessions get in the way. He reminds them that believers will judge the world when they sit with Christ in eternity. He, Revelation 2, 26 and 27, he who overcomes... And he who keeps my deeds until the end, apparently not the Corinthians, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. And I also, as I also have received authority from my father. Revelation 3.21. He who overcomes, I will grant him to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. And then third, Revelation 24. 20, verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, and because of the because of their testimony of Jesus, and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Paul's referring to this. Do you not know that you will sit in judgment with Christ Himself, and you can't constitute the smallest law courts? The irony here is thick. Paul asked the Corinthians, if Christ is making you competent to judge the world, why can't you judge your own tiny internal problems comparatively? Now, I don't mean to minimize 
the problems that come up between believers. That's not what I'm trying to do here. But Paul is making a comparison here. The Greek word translated law courts is the word from which we get the English word criteria. <laughs> the instrument or means of trying or judging anything, the rule by which one judges, the place where judgment is given, the tribunal of a judge. In fact, under the proper tutelage of the Word of God and in and the Holy Spirit, Christians are supposed to be very, now they can't see this on the tape, but I'm doing the little quotes thing, judgmental. We're supposed to judge things according to God's Word. So, again, the Greek love of controversy overrode their good judgment <laughs> and caused them to take one another to court over the silliest things. Much like our country today, you can sue anyone for anything, and indeed people do. This is going to be a walk through some of the strangest things. In 1995, Robert Lee Brock sued himself for $5 million. He claimed that he had violated his own civil rights and religious beliefs by allowing himself to get drunk and commit crimes which landed him in the Indian Creek Correctional Center in Virginia, serving a 23-year sentence for grand larceny and breaking and entering. What could he possibly have to gain by suing himself? Well, since being in prison prevented him from having an income, he expected the state to pay. The case was thrown out. In 2000, Cleanthe Peters sued Universal Studios for $15,000. She claimed to have suffered extreme fear, mental anguish, and emotional distress due to visiting Universal Studios' Halloween Horror Nights haunted house, which was billed as a terrifying place to visit. She said it was too scary. So she sued them. In 2006, Alan Heckard sued Michael Jordan and Nike founder Phil Knight for $832 million. He claimed to suffer defamation, permanent injury, and emotional pain and suffering because people often mistook him for the basketball star. Heckard dropped the lawsuit later uh, that year. In March 2008, in Danbury, Connecticut, in Danbury, Connecticut, 15-year-old Vinicius Robacher sued his teacher for slamming her palm on his desk to wake him up during class. <laughs> An action that he claimed caused him ear damage. In January 2007, Carl Kemp, owner of a ritzy antique store on Manhattan's Madison Avenue, sued four homeless people who congregate in front of his shop because they scare off potential customers. The amount of the suit, $1 million. Payable, apparently, in shopping carts full of aluminum cans. September 2002, music publishers for the late... For the late... Did you just get that picture? There you go. I only need 26 million more of these. Okay. In September 2002, music publishers for the late avant-garde composer John Cage sued musician Mike Batt for plagiarism after he included a silent song on his album. That's right, silence. No music or vocals whatsoever. The publishers claimed that Batt's song, entitled A Minute Silence, ripped off Cage's 4 minutes 33 seconds, which also contained no music or vocals. Despite the seeming insanity of copyright silence, Batt agreed to settle out of court by paying a six-figure amount. So, so the lawsuit's stupid. Well, it's even stupider is that apparently it worked. Remember the, I wonder, I wonder if Simon and Garfunkel were in trouble for sounds of silence. Let it not be said of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ that we would do such things. Paul was aghast that the Corinthians were taking one another to court over anything at all, let alone silly things like those mentioned above. 
This happens. This happens today in churches, and it shouldn't happen. Any comments about chapter about verse two? Verse three. Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So the fallen angels will be judged by God. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, first Second Peter two four, but cast them into hell, committed to them pits of dark, and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Jude, uh, Jude one six, the and angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. The wording of both of these verses allows for the possibility that believers, <coughs> excuse me, will be involved in the judgment of the sinning angels. The word translated judge, however, can also be translated to rule or govern. Since Christ was exalted above all the angels, as it says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse uh, 20 and verse 22, through 22, it says, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. And since we are in Christ and are like him, are to reign with him, and are to reign with him. While one cannot be dogmatic about this, it's not too much of a stretch to assume that believers will have some sort of authority over the holy angels in the eternity to come. I'm not proposing a new doctrine. I'm just, this is not a stretch, okay? Those who were created to serve humanity and to deliver God's command and favor would probably consider it an honor. But the fallen angels, including Satan, will be horrified by this. Satan must gloat over every person that is cast into hell, noting that they will not judge him. That person will not sit in judgment of me. The word structure in this sentence indicates that Paul places a very high value on proper judgment of things in this life as compared with the idea of judging angels in the life to come. So I want to get back to that comparison I made. I'm, uh, far be it from me to say that the things in this life are minuscule compared to this. Paul's word construction here indicates that it's of, it's of importance that we judge the things in this life correctly. And so it's compared with judging angels, governing angels in the life to come. You will judge angels. The way that Christians treat each other is so very important that Paul, that Paul stresses here. You will judge angels, he says. But more importantly, can you not judge the situations in your lives today properly? So I, he's, he's trying to warn them away from this tendency to abandon judgment to other people but just take it to court. Just call the cops. Just, just, again, now there are things that probably need to be taken to court. Divorce, um, disposition of children, things like that in divorce proceedings. Although, I would propose to you that in a properly constituted Christian situation, it could probably be handled as well. If the idea was to take it as a family and not as a legal issue. That's hard to do. It's hard to do when emotions are high about something like that. So, verse 2. Anybody have any comments or questions about verse 2? 3. Was that 3? Well, did you have any comments about 2, Lana? Thank you. Anybody have any comments or questions about verse 3? Okay. So, Paul says in verse 4, if you have law courts dealing with the matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? Now, I read, I read this verse over and over, and I looked at it in the Greek. I'm not a Greek scholar, but I can see why, to some degree, 
what the, the commentators were saying. It's very difficult to translate this verse. It can actually be translated two different ways, and it would be properly following Greek, Greek uh, um, rules. And either one of them says pretty much the same thing. It's, it's, the general meaning is clear, though. The lowest, least learned Christian in the church is more confident to deal with the matters of life between two believers than is a secular law court. The lowest, least competent, and I don't say that in a pejorative way, but just in a uh, informative and maturity, is more competent to deal with the matters of life between two believers than is a secular law court. Some translations actually render it, they render it in a variation of the New American Standard translation. Don't appoint people to judge over you who have no church standing. That's one way. Others render it, even the lowest in the church is better at judging disputes between Christians than the most unlearned unbeliever. The most learned unbeliever, excuse me. Even the lowest in the church is better at judging a dispute between Christians than is the most learned unbeliever. Why is that? Because the scripture says we have the mind of Christ. And if the person who has been asked, the person or persons who has been asked to help adjudicate the matter is submitted to the will of God, then it's not going to happen quickly, but you'll get, a good, you'll get a good response, a good dispute judgment. Because if they're truly under the, the conviction that the Word of God has the answer and that the Holy Spirit will do what is best for Christ's glory and for the needs of the people, then you'll get a good judgment. You may not like it, but it can be a good judgment. Either way, the idea is to deal with our own issues in the church. In this, we will give glory to God and no occasion for the world to denigrate the church. So I looked up um, all the different translations. This is the variation, the first variation. Why would you do such a thing? And there were 16 translations, different translations that came up with that. I don't know what the message said, but I didn't ask. How come I pointed at the screen? So these are still some more translated. Why would you do such a thing? If you then have to have judges, if you then have to judge things pertaining to this life, do you set them to judge who have no account in the church? Revised version. Um, all different kinds. Interesting. This is uh, the group of translations translated. Even the lowest Christians are better. If you then have judgments as to things of this life, set those to judge who are little esteemed in the assembly. Find somebody in the assembly who's little esteemed. He can do the job. Corinthians. Uh, King James, if you then have judgments of things pertaining to the last life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. Um, modern King James, if you truly have, if then you truly have judgments of the things of this life, set those who are least esteemed in the church to judge. Young's literal, of things of life, indeed then, if you may have judgments, those despised in the assembly, these cause you to sit. That's actually how the Greek reads. <laughs> so, anyway, so even the lowest Christians are better than unbelievers. Or, why would you do such a thing? Why would you set those over you who have no standing in the church? Either way, Paul is telling the Corinthian believers, you have difficulties, settle it in the church. If pe brother is going against brother into the courts, tell him to buy his shoes at Cabela's after this, it's, it's settled in the church. If you have issues in the church, settle them yourselves. Why would you bring outsiders in who have no knowledge of the word of God and who even may despise it to sit in judgment over your problems? 
The lowest believer in your body who has the Holy Spirit and even a cursory knowledge of the Word of God is a better judge than someone from the world. How many times have you or I needed to judge something about an event, a person, or something? And we took, we didn't have the answer. We went to the Word of God. We spent hours. We spent time. We got counsel. And we came up, by God's grace, with a good answer. How many times have we done that? That's what Paul's talking about here. Do the same thing with each other. Not just whether or not you should buy that house. Now, would that be easy to do? When the emotions run high? When someone's just taken something of great value from you and never paid you for it? How would you deal with that? The mindset has to be what Paul will talk about later. And we're not going to get that to, get to that today. So that's a teaser to not sue the church for me being back, at least until I get through that. Any comments or questions about verse 4? Verse 5. I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not one among you, one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? So Paul is, is truly concerned about this church. It's a remarkable thing in his mind that among a group of believers who have been taught Scripture for years, there apparently is not one wise person who was able to take care of the disputes that arise between believers. This is something that we all should aspire to. Not for fun, not for amusement, not for something to do when we don't have anything else to do, but because God calls us to it. For the purpose of giving glory to God and properly settling things between believers in the church. The not, it should be done in love with care and consideration for all parties involved. Mediation may be considered by some to be an art, but it is attainable by every believer who rightly divides God's word. The general sense of this is that Christians should handle civil matters that come between believers. Criminal cases, issues of divorce and child placement, of course, may have to be settled in the court system. And it should go without saying, but Paul had to say it in Corinth, love should govern everything. Love for one another should govern everything. Love for the Savior should govern everything. Love for the Father, love for the Holy Spirit should govern everything. If we actually get to a place where a legal matter between believers has to be decided, it should be different than is done in the world. It should not be characterized by rancor and divisiveness. Differences can be settled in a matter that honors the Lord. I read of numerous cases uh, as I was doing this study, and I was going to present some of them, but I just didn't. Um, I just didn't, obviously. In many cases, believers who had been defrauded by their brethren just simply forgave it. Some of the cases I read, I went, wow, that cost him a lot of money to forgive that. They looked at the forgiveness and the love necessary to restore. What's the object of anything like that? It's to restore the one. It's to restore the one who has defrauded you. And in many cases, I think that some of them I read about had a, had a glorious culmination where the person came back to the Lord and restored, and the relationship was resolved, resolved. Some of them didn't. You don't do it. You don't do it for what might happen. You resolve it. You, you resolve to rather be defrauded, Paul will say later, because it is to the glory of God. Any comments about verse 5? We'll finish up with verse 6. He says, but brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. I can imagine him shaking his head. And brother goes to law with brother. 
talking about believers. A believing brother goes to law with a believing brother. And that before unbelievers. Paul continues his discourse of unbelief. He's clearly talking here about Christians suing Christians in a pagan court. It's bad enough that they're going to law against each other, but it's even more horrifying that they would do it in the world system. They have been called out of the world system. This means every aspect of the system, including the courts. These Christians were no longer walking in the light. They were hating their brothers and sisters by their actions. We can sing songs all day long about loving Jesus and loving one another, but in the end, it is our actions that people will see and mark. Love or hate. 1 John 2, 9 and 11 through 11. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Actions like this in the church will cause unbelievers, can, can actually cause believers to doubt their assurance. When we do not live biblical truth out in our daily lives, we demonstrate to the world that we don't really agree with it. You do what you believe. We do what we believe. And we show others that we truly hate them. The world already hates believers. We certainly don't need to add to the list. We certainly don't need to add to that. And then 1 John 3, 13 through 19. It can help if, if we do not live out biblical doctrine in our lives out of love for the Savior. It can actually cause us to doubt our, doubt our assurance. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Remember what Jesus said earlier in Matthew. You have said by, it is said by them of old that you shall not be murdered. But I say that if you hate your brother, you have, you have murdered him. You have killed him. No murderer. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know but love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's good and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our hearts before him. I'm saying that that is a form of assurance in our lives as we live out by the Holy Spirit's guidance, attentive to the word of God, loving one another every day in deed as well as in word. It gives an assurance that the Holy Spirit is true to his word, that God's word is active, effective, and I don't like to speak as though I'm being pragmatic, but you, you see it happening. It, it works in your heart. Now, we don't, we don't uh, get all our assurance just because of seeing things work. We get our assurance because the scripture says so. Thus saith the Lord. But isn't it good when you throw that ball over the right mark and you get a strike? It proves in your mind that that was my mark. This is our mark. This is where we throw the ball over. Do all of you bowl? Pretty poor analogy, huh? <laughs> I guess I'm showing my age. Anyway, when you, when you mark what God has said, and by the grace of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit themselves, actively pursue what he has told us to do, and do it by God's grace, by God's grace alone, it results in assurance for your soul, as well as blessing to others. These believers at Corinth were not doing that. They were seeing a problem, and they were suing one another. They were taking one another to court. 
There was no love involved. There was only a hope of getting my due and having a good time while I do it. Let it not be said that the church of God today would do this. And I delightfully belong to a body that believes this stuff and lives, loves indeed as well as words. And I'm thankful for that. Let's pray. Father, we don't, we don't want to be defeated. We don't want to be described as people who do not love you by our deeds. We want to be described as people who love you by our words and our deeds. And only the Holy Spirit can accomplish that in our lives. Only the Holy Spirit through the word of God can accomplish that in our lives. Let us, as we learn of the things in your word that need to change in our lives, let us co cooperate and abide and do those things that are needful. Remove those things that are unneedful. Lord, might you be glorified in all that we say and do and all that we say and do today, tomorrow, and forever. And as we, as we fall, Lord, remember, we, we want to remember that we can come to you for forgiveness and start anew every time because your love is unending and your restoration is perfect. And we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.